You're listening to the Brandon Women's Bible Study Podcast, led by Leslie Ann Jones. Hey y'all, it's Leslie Ann. Thanks for listening in this week. This week in class, we discussed 1 Samuel chapters 14 through 15 and examined Saul's downfall as Israel's king. His story is a cautionary tale, a warning against the dangers of consistently rejecting the will and the word of the Lord. The teaching corresponds with the material covered on pages 76 through 91 of the Learner Workbook, available for download from thevillagechurch.net. This is the last session of our fall Bible study, but we'll pick back up with part two of 1 Samuel in the spring. See you then. According to Wikipedia, which we all know is a very reliable source. A cautionary tale is a tale that is told in folklore to warn its listener of a danger. I think we can agree with that, right? That fits our definition. But it also said that there are three essential parts to a cautionary tale. First, there's a taboo or a prohibition. Uh, Don't do this kind of thing. Second, the narrative itself is told. So then you get like the unfolding of the person disregarding the taboo or the prohibition. And finally, the violator comes to an unpleasant fate. Um, Sometimes it is recounted in expansive and grisly detail, right? I think you can probably see where I'm going with this. If you remember way back in our very first meeting, I said that 1 Samuel was a book of historical narrative. It is history, but it's history with an agenda. And it has a point of view, and it's not by any means unbiased. And Saul's story is one of the biggest examples of this that you can see in the book. It's like the biggest, gaudiest, flashing neon caution sign that you could ever imagine. And it's designed to get our attention. His kingship started out on a high note, right? Last week, the beginning of our lesson, things were good. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. They were anointing him as king. Everything was great. But then it's all downhill from there. It's one misstep and disaster after another with hardly a break between which made this week's reading so much fun. It was awesome, right? And just to be honest, it's hard. It, it wasn't fun to read these chapters or study them. It's difficult because we know we have the advantage of outside perspective. We can look from the outside looking in, and we can see where he's headed, and we know that it's not good. And because of that, we can know and understand that the author, whoever it was, who wrote 1 Samuel, is basically telling us, don't do this. Whatever you do, don't be like Saul. He never listened when it mattered. He always acted impulsively, and he eventually sealed his own fate because of his reckless disregard for the Lord's authority. His story is a cautionary tale, if there ever was one, a warning against the dangers of consistently rejecting the will and the word of the Lord. Here's a spoiler alert for you. It doesn't go well for him. And this is the beginning of the end for him. So if we pick up where we left off last week, things aren't good, right? Do you remember how it was? Samuel left. Saul to his own questionable devices, right? And when Samuel left, it left Saul without the word of the Lord to guide him. But Samuel left, why? Because Saul had usurped his authority. He had offered the sacrifices in his place. And in the meantime, this massive Philistine army is gathering. Saul's army is scattering until he's left with only 600 men for the Philistines, 300,000. And oh, by the way, the Philistines have lots of really nice weapons. 
and the Israelites have two. So the odds are definitely not in their favor. And that's where we pick up in chapter 14, verse 1. One day, Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah in the pomegranate cave at Migron. So already here, you can see that there's a bit of tension between Jonathan and Saul because they're not of the same accord. Jonathan doesn't even tell him that he's going to do anything. And we'll see just how different they are as the story goes on. So Saul is in this random pomegranate cave. The people who were with him were about 600 men. It tells us again, so we know exactly how few they have, including Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh, wearing an ephod. So when we read this, your radars should be going off. Why? Well, because Saul has Eli's great-grandson with him acting as priest. And what do we know about Eli's dynasty? Wah, wah, wah. Yes, they are cursed. It's doomed. And, you know, I don't know if it's a coincidence or not, but so has Saul's. Saul has also been on the receiving end of this bad word from Samuel. Eli's lost the priesthood. Saul's family has lost the kingdom. So here we have two families who are going to be stripped of their titles, who are going to lose their authority, and they're the ones in charge. So how well do you think this is going to go? But I do want to say one more thing before we go on, because the fact that he even has the priest there tells us something that's important about Saul. And it's that religious ritual is very important to him. You know, we saw that a little bit last week when he insisted on making the sacrifices that weren't his to make. He knew the sacrifices had to be made, so he made them. He does all the right things, kind of. He knows what needs to be done. So he does what he can to do it. But his steps are always a little bit offbeat. Like he misses the point. He's always one step behind or a little bit too early because he doesn't know or understand the ways of the Lord. And that's going to be his undoing in the end. Now, we know he got in trouble last week because of the sacrifice because he wasn't willing to wait for Samuel, right? That's what it all boiled down to. it. He wanted to make the sacrifice, but he wasn't willing to wait on the Lord's timing. And this time he has a priest with him so that he can make a petition to the Lord But the priest comes from a family whose demise has already been foretold. It's like he has the best of intentions, but they never pan out the way that he thinks they will. It doesn't work the way he thinks it will. So we get to verse 3, the second half of verse 3. It says, The people also didn't know that Jonathan had gone. Within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on the one side and a rocky crag on the other side. So these are basically two, like, straight-up cliff faces. It's not like he just climbed a little hill. The one whose name was Bozes means the gleaming one, which basically means it was in the full sun. So it was shining. And the name of the other one was Senna, which means the thorny one. It was basically covered in thorn bushes. Not exactly the kind of thing you want to go climbing up with your bare hands. Not what you would pick for a rock climbing expedition, okay? So the one crag rose on the north in front of Michmash and the other on the south in front of Geba. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. So that's a derogatory term. And he's saying it to point out that these are not people of the Lord. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And his armor bearer said to him, do all that's in your heart, do as you wish. 
Behold, I am with you heart and soul. Here we get our first glimpse of what could have been, right? Because Jonathan is next in line for the throne. He saw son, and if Saul had only obeyed, then Jonathan would have been the next king. And what kind of king do you think he would have been? Just given off this very little bit of information we have. The total polar opposite, right? He talks about the Lord like he knows him. Nothing can stop the Lord from saving. It doesn't even give him pause that it's him and his armor bearer against 300,000. Like, that would give me pause. (laughs) Mm -mm, Not doing that. No, thank you. So it shows a lot about his faith that he would go and do something like this because he knows that with God, anything is possible. Whereas his father, who was in such a hurry to get to the battle, remember, he had to make those sacrifices. He had to get back to the battle. Is still sitting in the camp waiting. And you see that Saul is a man who acts when he needs to wait. And he waits when he needs to act. He gets it wrong. This battle should have been Saul's. God told Samuel when he first anointed Saul that he was raising up Saul to deliver them from the hand of the Philistines. These are the people that God has raised Saul up to fight against. And yet it's his son who is stepping in to fill the role. So let's keep reading verse 8. Then Jonathan said, Behold, we'll cross over to the men and we'll show ourselves to them. If they say to us, Wait until we come to you, then we'll stand still in our place, and we will not go up to them. But if they say, Come up to us, then we will go up, for the Lord has given them into our hand. And this shall be the sign to us. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines said, Look, Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they've hidden themselves. And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, Come up to us and we'll show you a thing. Like, you want a piece of this? Come on. And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. So here's another difference between Jonathan and Saul, right? Jonathan asks for a sign from the Lord and he doesn't act until he gets an answer. He's kind of holding back. He's like, let's see what they say. If they say this, it'll be this. If they say this, it'll be that. And he waits, and then his actions are determined by the answer that they gave. That matches the sign that he was looking for. And so it's funny because he's fully prepared to follow this through either way. And the Philistines, I mean, they're... They think they have nothing to lose, right? They're like, oh, look, they're coming out of the holes where they're hitting themselves. Hey, come on out. We got something to show you. And Jonathan's like, oh, yes, I'm coming. Be right there. Like, you don't know what you're in for. You have no idea who's coming for you. So then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet, scaling the rock face. And after he did that, he apparently was not tired. And his armor bearer after him, and they fell before Jonathan, and his armor bearer killed them after him. And that first strike, which Jonathan and his armor bearer made, killed about 20 men within, as it were, half a furrow's length and an acre of land. And there was a panic in the camp, in the field, and among all the people. The garrison and even the raiders trembled, the earth quaked, and it became a very great panic. So the Lord did meet them there. As the earth itself was quaking, causing this great panic to rise up. 
So, this doesn't go unnoticed, unnoticed in the Israelite camp. The watchmen of Saul and Gibeah of Benjamin looked, and behold, the multitude was dispersing here and there. Then Saul said to the people who were with him, Count and see who has gone from us. It's not even until something starts happening that he even realizes that Jonathan's gone. And when they had counted, behold, Jonathan and his armor-bearer were not there. So Saul said to Ahijah, Bring the ark of God here. For the ark of God went at that time with the people of Israel. They apparently got it out from Kiriath-Jerim and took it with them into battle. Presumably they put it back when they were done. Um, but it was there with them in battle. So Saul asks the priest, Ahijah, to bring out the ark so that he can make an inquiry of God before the ark. So that, because remember, the ark is, symbolizes the presence of God, right? And so they're going to come before the Lord and they're going to inquire of him before he goes and joins the battle. Okay? But what happens? Verse 19. Now while Saul was talking to the priest, the tumult in the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. <laughs> Don't bother finishing. Then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and went into the battle. So Saul realizes that something's going on, right? He takes a look, discovers that Jonathan's missing, and he decides that he needs even more information to do something. So he calls Ahijah over with an ark because he apparently wants to seek the Lord's will. But in the middle of the thing, whatever it was that Ahijah was doing, I'm not exactly sure. His prayer, consulting the umim and the thumim, or whatever it was that he was doing, I don't know what he was doing in that moment, but he's like, oh, wait, never mind. I've got this. Yeah. Don't worry. Just just stop what you're doing because I've got this. Yeah. And he just, no need to carry on. We don't need to actually talk to God. And again, just like at Gilgal, he jumps to action without hearing from the Lord. So Jonathan asked for a son, then acted. Saul starts to ask, but he doesn't finish. And this is where we see his heart comes to play. Because as much as Saul has all of the external trappings of faithfulness in place, you know, he knows that you need to make sacrifices. He knows that you need to consult a priest. He knows these things are the right things to do. But when it comes right down to it, his actions tell a different story. And it's sobering, really, if you think about it. Because Saul is a man who knows what needs to be done, and his intentions are good. They really are. But he doesn't ever follow through. He stops halfway there. Like he, he almost does it right every single time. His heart just isn't in it. And the difference that you see between Jonathan and Saul, father and son, is really astounding. Jonathan gives me hope for the rest of the people of Israel. Because Saul is just one man, and so is Jonathan. So if Jonathan had this sort of deep-seated faith, surely, surely some of the people did too. But Saul wasn't one of them, right? Saul is too busy worrying about the numbers and the odds of success and who knows what else. I don't know what goes on in a general's mind right before they enter battle. But he just couldn't take the time to stop and meet with the Lord. You see that play out over and over again. And this, honestly, is where it hits me, where it hurts. Because, to be perfectly honest, I think I am often far too busy worrying about my to-do list and our finances and who needs to be where at what time and all the things. Your things are different from my things, but we all have things, right? 
And I don't always stop and meet with the Lord either. I make decisions without praying about them. I just do what seems right because I like to cross things off my list. (laughs) And sometimes taking the time to sit down and be still and listen and pray doesn't feel very productive. There's always a million other things pulling for our attention, right? Right? I do know. I do know. Now, the things pulling for our attention are not, you know, an army of 300,000 people. But our attention is divided as well. And if we are not careful, we can fall into that same pattern that Saul did, where we'll definitely have a quiet time tomorrow. Or we'll for sure pray about that later. Right now, there's just too much going on. When things settle down, that's when I'll start that new Bible study. That's when I'll get serious. That's when I'll get right. Because I've just, my life is too crazy right now. I can't. I just can't. Right? Right. That's your New Year's resolution. And it lasts for how long? (laughs) You know, the truth is that life is always busy and there's always going to be one crisis or another on the horizon. Always. So it's up to us to make that choice about who we're going to be like. Are we going to be like the father, like Saul? Are we going to be like the son, like Jonathan? Which one's it going to be? And that's a choice that each one of us have to make. Verse 20, the second half. Behold, every Philistine's sword was against his fellow, and there was very great confusion. Now the Hebrews who had been with the Philistines before that time, and who had gone up with them into the camp, even they also turned to be with the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, when all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were fleeing, they too followed hard after them in the battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle passed beyond beth So this battle unfolds a whole lot like Gideon's battle in Judges 7, right? They didn't have very many men, but they surrounded this huge army. Chaos ensued. The battle was won. Why? Why was the battle won? Because of God. Right? It doesn't even matter in the end that the Israelites don't have the weapons because the Philistines do, and they turn them on each other. And at the end of the day, it's the Lord who saves them. It's not Jonathan, and it's not Saul, and it's not the 600 men who are with them, but it's God. So they win the battle, and then they pursue the Philistines. They're chasing them out of the land, basically. And that's where Saul apparently, well, Saul apparently made this vow at some point. I don't know if it was before he brought the ark in or after the ark, but at some point before they left and went into the battle, he makes this silly little vow that causes great trouble, right? So we're going to read um, a good piece of it. We're going to read through verse 31, okay? And then we'll stop and talk. And the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day, so Saul had laid an oath on the people, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it's evening, and I'm avenged on my enemies. Because, I mean, when you've been fighting a battle all day... The last thing you want to do is, like, replenish your energy. I mean, I don't, I honestly don't know. Maybe, maybe really the last thing you want to do is eat. It might be too much for you. I don't know. But obviously, this is not a wise decision. It's not wise. So none of the people had tasted food. Now, when all the people came to the forest, behold, there was honey on the ground. And when the people entered the forest, behold, the honey was dropping. But no one put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. 
But Jonathan hadn't heard his father charge the people with the oath, so he put out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and dipped it in the honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth, and his eyes became bright. Then one of the people said, Your father strictly charged the people with an oath, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food this day. And the people were faint. Then Jonathan said, My father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little of this honey? How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they found. For now the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. Now, instead of it being a victory that's celebrated, he's placed this hardship on them. So that when they remember this day, it's not necessarily the victory that they're remembering. It's how hungry they were in the hours that followed. So it says they struck down the Philistines that day from Michmash to Ajalon, and the people were very faint. In case you were wondering, that is a distance of about 20 miles. So it's not like they just like walked around the corner. No, they had a reason to be tired. I don't know any marathon runner who doesn't replenish his energy. I mean, they're like, they've got like snack stations, right? Where they're getting an energy bar. What, what do they eat? I didn't watch little gel packs with, okay. <laughs> like, I don't know. They may not actually eat, but they replenish it somehow. They get the vitamins and the nutrients. Yes. They get what they need to keep going, right? So it's hard to even think about why Saul would do something like this, okay? So I think it's another one of those examples of false piety, Right? Because fasting is always a good thing, right? Well, maybe not always, especially in the circumstances like this. Um, Here, it's all wrong. But it's another one of those missteps on Saul's part because he's like, well, I didn't inquire of the Lord, but maybe if I make this vow and like we all fast, then God will honor our commitment and we'll continue to win this battle. He'll, He'll bless us because of this. But Jonathan misses it because he was actually busy fighting the enemies that Saul should have been fighting. So when he sees some honey, he does the natural thing and he eats it because he's hungry and he's tired and there's some food. So I'm going to eat it. And it's only after the fact that he finds out about Saul's curse. And he is not happy about it. And he didn't hesitate in his criticism, right? I mean, he says, my father has troubled the land. And the language that it talks about there when it says trouble the land, it's the same language that's used in Joshua when it's talking about Achan's sin. Do you remember Achan? We talked about him several weeks ago. Achan is the one who took some of the devoted things from the battle of Jericho, and he brought trouble into the camp of Israel when he sinned. So this is the same word that's used there. It's also the same word used in Judges. Does anyone remember the study of Jephthah? Jephthah made this crazy vow, and he said, um, you know, I'll, I'll kill the next person who comes to the door, and it was his daughter, and he tells his daughter, you have brought trouble on my house, okay, so this, this idea of trouble, like Saul cursed the one who ate the food, but Jonathan is saying, my father is the one who has brought on this curse, right? So the ironic thing here is that this battle 
would have been the perfect time for the Israelites to actually partake of the spoil. Even Jonathan sees that. He sees, he says, you know, we should be enjoying this victory. We're tired. We're faint. You know, and those are the exact words that he used. If the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies, right? Mm -hmm. So here they should have eaten the honey. It was rightfully theirs. Not to mention one of the promised blessings of the land, like we talked about earlier. And yet because of Saul's impetuous action, he kept them from celebrating victory by holding them to this false standard of piety. And it turns out to be not good. Okay, so let's keep reading verse 32. The people pounced on the spoil and took sheep and oxen and calves and slaughtered them on the ground. And the people ate them with the blood. Then they told Saul, Behold, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. And he said, You have dealt treacherously. Roll a great stone to me here. And Saul said, Disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, Let every man bring his ox or his sheep and slaughter them here and eat. And do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. So every one of the people brought his ox with him that night, and they slaughtered them there. And Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first altar that he built to the Lord. So, of course, because they haven't eaten all day, because they've been kind of busy fighting this battle and chasing the enemies across 20 miles of land, when they finally get the chance to eat, they're starving. But the problem is that they don't take time to slaughter the animals properly. And what's going on in the background here has a lot to do with the Mosaic Law. Because it says that they slaughtered them on the ground, which means that the blood couldn't drain out of the animals. Okay. So the problem is that they don't bother to let the blood drain properly. And this was strictly prohibited by the Mosaic Law because it says the life of the animal is in the blood. And it's not this obscure law that was only mentioned like once in half a verse somewhere. It was all over the place in the law. So they knew it, but they couldn't help themselves because they were so hungry. So Saul hears of it, and he builds the altar so that they can properly slaughter the animals. That's what it's all about. Like, give me the rock. Let's put the animals up on the rock. Let the blood drain out and stop all this madness. But the fact of the matter is that the fault in this situation lies squarely on his shoulders. Yes, they sinned, and they did break the law by their actions, but it was his vow that put them in that position. So he did this to them. And we see... If you follow the trajectory of a king who makes this kind of decisions and imposes them on his people, how that would have turned out for the people of Israel. If Saul is always making decisions and throwing things out there that seem right to him in the moment, but they have nothing to do with God, then he's leading his people farther and farther away from the Lord. When the king of Israel is supposed to be one who submits to the Lord first and foremost. Furthermore, Apart from that, this vow that he has made, it has nothing to do with God, right? That's why it's false piety. Because when you look at the curse itself in verse 24, it says, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. That has nothing to do with God. It's all about Saul. Verse 36. Then Saul said, Let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until the morning light. He's still not done. Let us not leave a man of them. And they said, do whatever seems good to you. But the priest said, hey, maybe we should ask God. Maybe we should, maybe we should pray about this first. <laughs> so the priest said, let us draw near to God here. 
And Saul inquired of God, Shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But he did not answer them that day. And Saul said, Come here, all you leaders of the people, and know and see how the sin has arisen today. For as the Lord lives who saves Israel, though it be in Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. He's saying, I don't care who did it. Whoever disobeyed me, you will die. Even if it's my own son, no one is safe. Well, but there was not a man among all the people who answered him because they knew. They knew. They knew that it was Jonathan. Then he said to all Israel, you shall be on one side and I and Jonathan, my son, will be on the other side. And the people said to Saul, do what seems good to you. Therefore, Saul said, O Lord God of Israel, why have you not answered your servant this day? If this guilt is in me or in Jonathan, my son, O Lord God of Israel, give Urim. But if this guilt is in your people, Israel, give Thummim. And Jonathan and Saul were taken, but the people escaped. Then Saul said, cast the lot between me and my son, Jonathan. And Jonathan was taken. It was casting lots. It's basically a type of rolling the dice. And it was the acceptable way for the people of God to ask God yes or no questions. When it came down to situations where it was like, should we do this, Lord? Then the priest who carried these would roll them or not exactly sure how it worked. Um, And whichever one, that would give the answer. And so that's what happened here. That's what they're doing. Saul's asking these yes or no. Is it them? Is it me? Is it me? Is it him? What's, what's going on here? And Jonathan is taken. Even after everything that had happened on that day, Saul is still willing to kill his own son to satisfy the vow that he had made. You keep reading in verse 43. Tell me what you have done, Jonathan. What would you do? And Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the tip of the staff that was in my hand. Here I am. I will die. And Saul said, God do so to me and more also. You shall surely die, Jonathan. There's no mercy here. No mercy. Then the people said to Saul, shall Jonathan die who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So they vow their own vow. They offer up their own lives in his place for him. So the people ransomed Jonathan so that he did not die. Then Saul went up from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. The people won't hear anything. They won't have it because they know the truth that it's Jonathan who was working with the Lord to save them that day. He was the one who brought them victory. So they ransomed him from his fate. And then when we get to verse 47, this is a really interesting passage because it's kind of the summary of Saul's time as king. And usually when you read passages like this, it comes at the end of a kingship. Right, So it's like the final thoughts, and, and he did this and this and this and this. And then the very next chapter starts with the next kings. What this would have signaled to the original hearers is that Saul is done. Like, that's it. From this point forward, they would be looking to hear about the new king. They would be waiting on news of who's going to follow Saul. All right? So then we get to chapter 15 in this really awesome passage that is so easy to deal with. There's no trouble or questions here at all, right? 
Let's read chapter 15, verses 1 through 3, and then we'll stop and talk for a while about all this fun stuff. And Samuel said to Saul, Samuel's back. But he gives another word. That's not very fun, right? The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Yay! (laughs) There was bad blood between Amalek and Israel. So the story is in Exodus 17, and it's right after they crossed the Red Sea, when Israel is at its very weakest point, Amalek showed them no mercy. They attacked them, and they were ruthless in their attack, but Israel won the battle. And you'll remember it, because it's the battle where Moses stood on the top of the hill with his arms raised, and as long as his hands were raised... That's right. The victory was was going on down there. But if he lowered his hands, not so good. So Aaron and Hur came and held his hands up until the battle was won. And what it says in verse 14 of of Exodus chapter 17 is this. The Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in the book and recite it in the ears of Joshua. Basically, make sure that, that the next generation knows this that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. So God makes this vow that he is going to wage war on Amalek and that he is going to blot them out forever, eventually. Well, it seems that eventually has arrived. And there are parts of the Old Testament that are really unsettling. And if we're honest, that's one of the reasons why we avoid it, because we get to hard passages like this, and you're like, I don't know what to do with that. I mean, how can God, who we say is loving and kind and merciful and gracious and compassionate, tell his king, the king of his people, to go and wipe out everything that lives and breathes, right? It's brutal, it's gory, and it can really mess with your faith in God as you know him. He doesn't seem good or kind in stories like this, but we know that he is, right? God is still good, and he is still kind. So then the question is, how can a good and loving God command his people to do something like this? It's uncomfortable, right? So there's a lot going on here, and I could not even begin to cover the topic in the way that it deserves to be covered, even if I spent the whole time tonight talking about it, okay? But I will say this. The problem here and in our concept of God when it comes to things like this is not one of God changing The God of the Old Testament is the same as the God of the New Testament. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. But the problem is that when we read things like this, it changes our concept of who God is. 
We need to remember that he is at once righteous and merciful, right? But it's his righteousness that compels him to wage war against sin. He doesn't clear people like the Amalekites out of the land to make room for Israel. It's not, it's not because Israel's good and they're bad. That's not what he does. He clears them out because they are so completely sinful that they are beyond hope. This is not the only time that they're mentioned in the Bible, okay? And it's clear that this is divine punishment for their sinfulness. So when we come to things like this, because this isn't the only place where this type of warfare is commanded by God. It's also in the conquest. In Jericho, devote everything to destruction, take no survivors, right? We know that there's exceptions like Rahab. But the whole counsel of the Old Testament is that their sinfulness was so great. The fact is that the Amalekites are being judged here for their sin. And they were enemies, not just of the Israelites, but of God. And we may not like it, but the fact is that God used his people in this case to be the arm of that divine punishment. And that does help us to understand it a little better. It's not ethnic cleansing. It's not genocide because it's not about their race or their ethnicity. It's about their sin. And in his perfect righteousness, God detests sin, and no one is exempt from the wrath of God. You'll see it come to play in Israel's own story later, when he uses other nations to punish them for their sin. When they are in exile, when they are cast out of the land. So he doesn't hold back, even from his own people. And we could all stand a healthy dose of fear, when it comes to God, I've been saying it all along in this book, right? Yes, God is loving and he is kind, but he is also just. And any just judge would punish a criminal who is standing in front of him. He would not be very just if he let the criminal go scot-free. So that means that God will fight for righteousness and punish sin always, without exception. And in this case, he used his people to wage war. And because of that, there's a big difference in this type of battle, this type of war, and normal war, like we read about in chapter 14, like we just finished talking about. Because this is a battle that is waged on behalf of Yahweh. It's about upholding His holiness. It's about meeting His requirements. And because it's an act of divine punishment, it's not a war where the people of Israel can profit from it. They are not supposed to gain anything from this. It is all supposed to be devoted for destruction before the Lord. Now, the great irony here, of course, is that when Saul should have let the people take of the plunder in the last chapter, he didn't. But now, when he should have, should not have let them have it, he did. So let's read about that, verses 4 through 9. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Telaim, 200,000 men on foot, so his army has grown and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. There is mercy for those who have shown mercy. So he lets the Kenites go. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword 
But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. Okay, so the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. So we know that God can't change, right? And because God cannot change, that means he can't change his mind. So when he says, I regret making Saul king, it doesn't mean that he thinks he should have done something else. God knew all along that these are the choices that Saul was going to make. He knew when he was anointed that this would happen. But that does not mean that he enjoys seeing it. When he says that he regrets making Saul king, it's more about disappointment and dismay that this is really happening, that Saul has fallen so far. And the crazy thing is, is that Saul is completely oblivious, right? Because Samuel comes the next day and Saul comes out to meet him. He's like, hey, what's up? I did what you told me to do. I did it. I completed the mission. And Samuel's like, really? What's up with these animals that I hear? Did you really? Because I'm hearing some animals that I shouldn't be hearing if you had done what you were supposed to do. Saul is about to find out exactly how bad things are, right? So Samuel says, what is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Saul said, they have brought them from the Amalekites. For the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. And the rest, we devoted to destruction. Pronouns matter. They did it. Wasn't me. I had nothing to do with it. I devoted things to destruction. They kept. Was not me. And then Saul's like, stop talking. (laughs) You are not, Samuel says, you are not making it any better, right? Let me tell you what God said to me. He says, okay, speak. And Samuel said, though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? What, you think you're excused? You're their king. You're in charge. You are the one who sets the rules, right? The Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed, kind of. No, that's not what he said. I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought a gag that wasn't part of the mission. And I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people they took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction. Why did they? And you know, they, even they had a good reason. They were going to sacrifice it to the Lord at Gilgal. Well, Saul... He refuses to accept responsibility, right? He points fingers, he shifts blame, but Samuel won't have any of it, right? Because Saul was king, he was in charge, and it was his job to make sure that the people of the Lord kept the word of the Lord. 
but he did not do that. And so then we have these famous words from Samuel, right? In verse 22, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. God is far more concerned with who we are than with anything else. Because if the heart is in the right place, then the actions will follow. He will not accept the offerings of a prideful heart. He wants complete and total surrender. There's no room for presumption, for presuming to know better than the Lord, for deciding that our ways are better when it comes to him. No, God wants our humility and he wants our obedience and he will accept nothing less. And I know that you can understand this because your parents, your moms, right? So when I give my child a command, a directive, when we are walking in a parking lot and I say, stop, I want them to stop right then. So our saying about obedience in our house is you do what I say right away, all the way, and with a happy heart. We're not there yet. So I don't want you to think, I don't want you to think that we've got this down. But this is what we are working toward. It matters to me that they obey because I told them to. And I know that, like, when I was a kid, because I said so, and we've talked about this, like, it, it didn't make sense before I was a mother. But I know things that they don't know, just like the Lord knows things that we don't. And so when he gives a command, whether or not it makes sense to us, even if it's hard, even if it's terrible, even if it's uncomfortable, It is not for us to question the decision or to do something else entirely because we thought we knew better. It is for us to obey. So finally, the truth comes out in verse 24. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord in your words. Why? Because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. Second time he said it. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe, and it tore. And that's symbolic, right? Because the kingdom has been torn away. Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel, and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul bowed before the Lord. Saul, again, his fear was misplaced. He feared the people. He was afraid of what they would think, what they would say, what they would do if he didn't let them have their way, right? But he should have been afraid of the Lord. And the sad thing is that his remorse, whether or not it was genuine, I mean, who are we to say? It could have been. That could have been genuine repentance. I don't know. 
it's too little too late. It cannot undo the consequences that he has already set in motion. God has already made up his mind to take away the kingdom. The words have been spoken. It has been said. And what do we know about God? He cannot change. And God keeps his word. So it cannot be undone. No matter how bad Saul wants to change it, it's done. Saul can grasp after the kingdom all he wants, but it has been torn away. And so then we're going to close with this super fun section, these last three verses, 32 through 35. Then Samuel said, bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag said, surely the bitterness of death is past. Not so much, Agag, not so much. And Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Then Samuel went up to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul. And the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. We should never, ever forget that sin is serious. Or take it lightly. Or think, "Eh, I can ask forgiveness for that later. It's okay. It's just a little while. It's no big deal. No big deal. No, sin is always a big deal. And it's costly. Samuel did what Saul was unable to do. He rendered justice, the Lord's justice. And the words that he gives Agag, you have made women childless. Agag's not a good dude, right? He was not without fault. His death is gory and it's violent because it is divine punishment for sin. And it shouldn't really surprise or shock us. I mean, it does because easy now like couldn't you just give him an injection of some sort (laughs) would that do the same thing no god will wage war against sin always no matter how unsettling it is to us we have to come to terms with it because his anger his wrath and his justice all those things that kind of make us squirm a little bit they're all closely irrevocably tied to his love Y'all, God hates sin. Why does he hate sin? Because of what it does to his people. Because he loves us. And his anger is poured out on that. Of course evil makes him angry. Of course it does. I would be shocked if God was not upset by the Holocaust. I want God to be mad at that. Don't you? And I want there to be a reckoning for sin, for evil, for injustice, for all the bad things. God would not be a good God if he wasn't wrathful. And we need to remember that. They are tied together. You can't, you can't have the love without the anger. Because just think about when the mama bear rises up in you, if something happens to your kid, somebody insults them, or they get hurt. I mean, you're going to come to their defense because that's your job. And on a much grander scale, it's the same way with the Lord. God hates sin, but he loves his people. And we need to remember that on the cross, he poured that wrath out. And he absorbed it in himself. And that's what the words of the song say. That on the cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. 
Jesus' death was every bit as violent and gory as Agag's. But he died for sin just like Agag did. Thank goodness that we're on this side of the cross, right? Thank God. So, on that happy note, where does that leave us? Like all cautionary tales, um, Saul's is warning us against something. His folly, his mistake, is in presuming that he didn't need God, that he would be just fine as king on his own. He knew better. I don't need to stop. I don't need to wait. I've got this, that his ways would work out just fine. But the truth is that he did need God, and he didn't know better. And his ways did not work out so well. Y'all, we need God too. We're just regular people. Saul was a regular guy who happened to be king. We need God, and we need to remember that he knows best, always. And even when we don't understand it, or we think it's too hard, or... What was he thinking when he put that in the Bible? (laughs) Make sure you remember that God's ways are better than anything that we could ever come up with on our own. Always. His way is the best way. Let's don't forget it. And it leaves us too, I think, hopeful. Because you get to this point and you're like, man, something has got to give. And say you're just looking and you're waiting for that better king. And it's immediately filled, we know, in David, but it's ultimately filled in Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of this. Because why? God is king. No human king is ever going to live up to that standard. Only God. Only God can be the king that we need. 